Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lou Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gordon Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordon Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, the Gordon Institute undergraduate scholar, Paul McCray. All right, so I'm going to talk about population and uh, some interesting areas. Before we get too deep, though, I just thought of economic growth. Like sometimes people are like, why do we have to grow? Why are people so greedy? And why do we have this system? And and why do incomes have to grow? And, and one of the answers is the population is growing. And so we do have to have some growth of some sort. And, you know, there's some funny movies out there that if, if the rich and smart people quit having kids and the dumb and repugnant people continue to have more kids, then our society is kind of in some sort of potential downward spiral. I don't believe a bit of that, by the way, but anyway, I think, I can't remember the name of that movie, but, uh, so I don't know where Justin's taking us, but some sort of repugnant conclusion. Justin, take it away. Okay. What an intro, huh? (laughs) So Russ said, come up with a philosophy thing to talk about today. So I thought we'd talk about the mere addition paradox, which is sometimes called the repugnant conclusion paradox. And it's a problem in ethics that was, um, I think, formally identified by Derek Parfit in his book, Reasons and Persons, which is uh, a classic in contemporary moral philosophy. It's a great book. It has an enormous amount of very fertile thought and experiments, and it is accessible to the dedicated layman if you want to try to slog your way through it. Somebody who's actually Uh, interested a little bit in philosophy. It's dense, but it's... Readable. Huh? Readable. Yeah, readable. Um, It's conversational, at least. Um, And it has to do with four different kinds of societies that, that we could have. And It says, let's stipulate that there's a society where everybody has the same amount of of happiness. Let's just call this uh, happiness number like 100, right? Um, And of course, again, this is all, I don't think we can actually measure, quantify happiness (laughs) like this, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But just for the, the sake of this thought experiment, what we should walk through it, because it has some implications for uh, what we want out of society in terms of like well-being. And it has some implications for how we reason about um, situations and whether or not um, what we'll call like transitivity can apply and what that means. Um, So if we consider a society A, where there's, let's say, like 100 people, right, and everybody in A has 100 units of happiness, and that's like really, that's really happy, let's say. Um, And then we could say, well, what if we increase that society's size by 100. It made it 200. But we stipulated that those next 200 people, they were only going to have a happiness level of 50. But 100's really, really happy. And 50's still pretty happy, right? It's a life that's anybody living it would consider it like worth living. Okay, so the first 100 gets to keep their 100 of happiness. Yeah. Uh, And Parfit says it doesn't, it seems, it doesn't seem like, uh, let's call this society A plus, right? 
because it's a plus that extra section he said yeah. doesn't seem like this society is any worse right. than the previous society it actually seems like i mean better it might be better right it, it seems preferable almost nobody in the original society has been made any worse and now we just have 100 extra people who also have a life that's worth living right then he goes okay well so let's call that society a plus so we have 100 people with 100 units of happiness and 50 uh and 100 people with 50 units of happiness right and he goes, all right, well, what if we consider the society B minus? And in B minus, we again have two groups of people. One of those groups of people has 80 units of happiness. And the other group of people also has 80 units of happiness, both 100 people, right? And he says, well, there's some reason to think that B minus is preferable to A plus because sure, some people in the original 100 have gone down but they haven't gone down by as much as the people who in A plus have gone up. So now instead of the average being 75, the average is 80 and everybody has 80, right? So it's at least Pareto, it's a possible Pareto improvement, right? Uh, in that like you could redistribute them such that nobody was made worse off, right? Uh, there's more units of happiness to go around. Yeah, it's potentially, yeah, potentially. It's a potential Pareto improvement. Okay. But he goes, that seems like it's, that that might be preferable to A plus. In fact, if if you think inequality is bad, then you, then true. it's definitely better, right? The average is better, and there's no inequality. And he goes, okay, well then let's consider B, and B is just like B minus, except we take those two societies in B minus where it's 200 people, and and then we just put them together. So now we have one society of 200 people, all at the level of 80. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And he goes, okay, so the problem with this, though, is we've gone from a society of A, where we think that, you know, everyone's really happy, and uh, the units of happiness A, and just by doing these couple mathematical maneuvers and steps that seem intuitively that each step is preferable, then we end up in a situation B, where everybody, there's more people, each person has less happiness, but the aggregate is higher, um, and so B is on this view preferable to A. Now, the problem with this is that we could say something like, well, 80, 80 seems pretty happy, pretty good too, right? The problem is that we can uh, do this iteratively. Yeah. And uh, Parfit's saying, Parfit makes the claim that, look, there are some lives that are so bad that we wouldn't want to live them. Um, Sometimes when I'm talking about lives like this, I like to think of like uh, poultry in uh, in chicken farm, like industrial chicken farming, where these uh, confined and confined in the dark, they have their beaks chopped off birth. Uh, you know, they fight all the time. Um, it's a life of terror, and then they die. Right? Uh, those are the females. The males just get thrown right back into the chipper, turned into feed. It's like it's pretty gruesome, right? Now, I wouldn't want to live like that. I wouldn't want that to be my life. And um, but Parfit says, like, if this reasoning is correct, then um, what you're going to be able to do is run this not just from A to B, but from B to a lower one, C and C to D and D, all the way down to where we have a, con a conclusion that it's preferable to have this really, really large number of people who are all just living lives that are barely worth living. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and so that's the paradox. The paradox is that Parfit says, I don't think that Z is better than A, um, but my reasoning from A to B would lead me to believe that from B to C to C to D to D to D. So that's the paradox, that each one of these steps seems plausible, 
but that we end up with the conclusion that we intuitively think is wrong. Death by a thousand cuts. And so this uh, this argument often gets brought up in like uh, in population studies. Yeah. Uh, but you can imagine this this type of argument being being applied in, in a bunch of different areas. So that's the philosophical argument. We can talk about some philosophical responses to the argument, but I know, Peter, you have said that this is, you know, you do a lot of stuff on population studies. So do you want to say anything here about like how this applies or maybe uh, how it doesn't apply to yeah, population dynamics? Yeah. So I, I think the paradox is interesting and it like it actually like is convincing to me the way that things are stipulated like i have the same feeling that the repugnant conclusion comes to that each step along the way i could even though i don't necessarily think each step is better than the last it's not obviously worse to me and yet by the end we're in an obviously worse place and so that's interesting sometimes this is talked about in the population literature it's in stuff that i touch less because it, this like it, the actually one of the nice things about this is it it kind of highlighted to me it was one of the first things that made me realize oh like you this idea of utilitarianism in economics that we can measure general welfare convincingly and find the best spot definitely bunk one of the ways that we know it's definitely bunk is like we have like these fights over well what's better a greater total utility or a higher average utility and this gets into the same area of like well what happens if we can increase the population and that one person, you know, enjoys their life still enough and like other people's life gets a little bit worse, but it gets worse less than the person who enjoys it. And so like you can kind of do the same thing in population literature. Now, I don't think that this actually applies in any meaningful way to economics and population research for the fact that like the things that are stipulated in the experiments aren't actually how things happen in the world. And uh, this isn't a disagreement with the thought experiment either. It's the same as like, if the trolley problem, you know, we, we do a trolley problem thing and we say, well, you better solve this. Otherwise, it's going to you're going to come across the trolley and then you're not going to know what to do. And it's like, no, we won't come across the trolley. The trolley's not out there. The trolley is a way of thinking. And so in the real world, when you add to the population empirically and theoretically, uh, the world improves. And that's what we see historically. There's uh, very little, if any, evidence to the contrary. Thomas Malthus famously in the 1700s said that he thought that basically what ha how the world works is that people's lives improved a little bit, but they couldn't help themselves and they had kids to the point where their lives got worse again and that this would continue forever and we would all starve to death. This was Malthus' original conclusion. He later revised, by the way, so it's not fair to saddle him with that forever. Some people uh, do. But yeah, that's true. Uh, but, but how history turned out is we saw actually people broke out of the Malthusian trap. Incomes have increased for all people, including people who have large families. You know, we didn't run out of food in the 70s when they predicted we were going to run out of food because of population. There have been a lot of claims that population was going to cause us to run out of resources or ruin the environment one way or another, and they've never borne out. Facts were richer than ever with a larger population than ever. And there's even some reason to think that that's causal. There's some reason to think that like people are actually the thing causing uh, the world to get better. And so in a like strict sense where in, in a not in a strict sense in a, in a dynamic sense where we actually introduce people into the world it would be silly to say that like you have a pre-assigned happiness value when you come into the world and that you don't affect the happiness values of others when really uh it seems to be the case that people can affect their own happiness value and improve the happiness value of other people in so far as we care about things like living longer having higher incomes and just having more people to uh you know be friends or family or whatever so 
I think it doesn't apply at all in, in population economics research, but the thought experiment is so interesting and I, I would be interested in hearing what the solutions are because like nothing pops into my head for like how I could answer this sort of thing. So, yeah. And so I, I kind of think where your head is always going, I think is if it, if we take that type of experiment and it leads to some sort of policy change, right. Where we're now endorsing transfer payments or take from the rich, give to the poor. And I, I think that's the danger of some of those, but it is interesting how logically it just kind of came down to that. And before you know it, we're at a worse spot. I couldn't help but think of Rachel Ferguson's point at a talk she gave here that if you make $35,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of income earners globally. And to me, that kind of supports a little bit of what Peter was talking about on how we can overcome some of these dire predictions that Malthus and, and other people have made, some of the doomsdayers, because of our changes that occur and uh, in thinking about how we can support each other through trade and, and markets and property rights, the stuff that we talk about uh, can bring about um, that happiness factor a little bit better. Although there's plenty of unhappy people in the United States that are making 35,000 a year. So maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe they can punch a hole in that. So, and I think we could come at, back to answers after the break, but like the one thing that I want to kind of like reaffirm, even though I don't think that this thought experiment applies in the real world, that's not a problem for the thought experiment. The thought experiment is actually still tricky. What's tricky about it is if it were the case that people came into the world with these happiness yeah. levels, yeah. we could get ourselves from a place to uh, where 100 people with 100 happiness um, is apparently worse than, I don't know, thousands of people with like one happiness or just enough to get by. And that seems like an issue. Like it seems like that's obviously there's a point where that would obviously become worse. Uh, and I can't think of a way around that in the thought experiment. So. All right. Well, we'll tackle that. Justin will tee us up and uh, we'll get back from the break in just a bit. Otto University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Each of these fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. This spring, Ottawa University is organizing a PPE League competition of politics, philosophy, and economics. Students in this competition will compete leveraging the ideas of philosophy, politics, and economics in various events. If you're a professor or an advisor of college students and you're interested in your school competing in PPE League this spring, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. We have some great programming going on for high school students. We have an online microeconomics class. Yes, you can earn college credit for $200 by taking an online class. It's affordable, flexible, layered with support. Our new online micro is optimized for you. If you'd like to consider some events for your high school students or that class, please contact Justin, Peter, or Russ today. All right, we're back. So it's time for Dr. Clark to uh, lead us down the path of some of the responses to this repugnant conclusion paradox. Yeah. 
So before we talk about the responses, I want to say I too think that I, I don't think it applies to uh, population generally. One of the reasons is that, like Peter said, I don't think you can quantify happiness in terms of units like this. Yeah. Um, but you can't quantify money like this, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And so you could run this experiment with money too, and see uh, and get essentially this a similar conclusion. Right? Yeah. Um, and then uh, you would, uh, you could make some arguments about how money relates to well-being to maybe block some of these moves in the argument. Yeah. But if the argument is like, well, for most people, the the uh, an amount of money X is such that the life is not living or whatever. Um, you could reconstruct this in terms of money yeah. and not in well-being. Directly, very. It's it's uh, when you just use well-being and quantify over well-being, it's a four-step argument, and you get the paradox really quickly. Right. Yeah. And like Peter said, the point of the paradox nece isn't necessarily related, like how it applies to policy. It's more about how we reason, right? Mm -hmm. um, which uh, Peter related to the trolley example too, which is great because like pe often people when you give them the trolley example they do like they go like well i just break the brakes on it or whatever or you know uh, it's like the point isn't the trolley you know the point is making these decisions and how right. we reason so i don't have a lot of good solutions to this one i can tell you some of the main solutions to it there's a philosopher who i generally like michael humer um, who's actually like best friend of Aaron kaplan and he's at the university of colorado boulder and he says that the republican the repugnant conclusion isn't repugnant uh, it's not the fact that b is worse than a b is better than a these steps are all mm -hmm. fine and that's why b is better than a yeah right and why i don't think the solution works is that you know if you talk to parfit he goes B being better than A isn't the repugnant the conclusion. The conclusion is Z being better than A, right? Well, wouldn't Hume, whatever, David, whoever, just say Z is better than A too? He would have to, right? Yeah, but that's that's not the defense sure. uh, that okay. makes uh, okay. as, as far as He's specific and, to like say that B was better. Than yeah, and, and maybe I'm wrong about well, that. Well, how about telling the A people that that it's better, right? I, I'm still a little hung up. I'm not sure it's it's a drawn conclusion that this isn't that a democracy. B is better than not, A. <laughs> But A doesn't have a vote on it. All right, yeah, because we're just coming into the world. Yeah, the world. so so like I actually think you can make an argument that Z is better than A. I don't think that I agree with it, but just instinctively, there's something off about it. But the argument I think would go something like this: Why people are so if you you're almost so like psychologized. People seem to be opposed to Z. It's repugnant. That's the word that's used, right? Z seems repugnant. Why is Z repugnant? Well, maybe there's like a veil of ignorance thing going on here. Where if you look at the 100 world, you kind of imagine yourself being in the world and you're like, oh, I'm one of the 100 people. That's great. And then by Z, you're just one of the one people. And so you say, well, I don't want to be one of the one people. And so A must be better than Z. But of course, that does ignore like necessarily that like there happens to be now thousands of more people who at least have one now who don't even exist in the, the A world. And maybe if like the, it's kind of difficult, but maybe if people could weigh the probability of like not existing in their heads, it's it's impossible yeah. to even conceptualize this, yeah. which is maybe part of the problem. Maybe they would come around and say, okay, actually Z is better than A because I'd rather have one with, I don't know, a 90% chance of existing than not exist at all. You know, I, uh, by definition, life that's barely worth living is worth living, preferable to not living, apparently. So maybe that's like the the quickest answer that jumps to my mind is Z is better than A. It's just hard to imagine Z being at better to A because it's really easy to identify with having 100 instead of one rather than existing and non-existing. 
Yeah. So I actually think you can run this argument kind of in reverse, okay. um, which seems to be what you're doing. But let me give one more sure. example of a response to the argument and tell you why I, I, I'm not sure that this one works either okay. before we do that. Um, so Larry Temkin has famously said that, look, uh, what this shows is that better than isn't isn't transitive here. Just because B prime being or yeah. A plus being better than A and B minus being better than A plus, that doesn't follow that B plus is better than than A. I cannot agree to that. <laughs> most people's response is something like, no, we just know that better than is transitive. Like it's like taller than, right? If A is taller than B and B is taller than C. Taller than C. A is taller than C, right? But I think a bigger problem with this this answer is that that doesn't stop you from making all of the transitive decisions. Right? Yeah, if you could you, do them chronologically, you would always so make you the still decision. end up yeah. in C. Yeah. And you, you just have to go like, wow, I was better up there. This was a mistake. Like, yeah. it doesn't save you from Z. Yeah, it just you end up at Z. You end up at Z, and you're bummed about it. So, so that one doesn't seem profitable to me either. Um, so. Let's talk about Peter's approach about saying, well, maybe if there are more people and you could, re you know, if you could put yourself behind, you know, a kind of Rawlsian veil of ignorance and think, okay, well, I, I could either be, uh, have 50% chance of living in a world where I have 100 or whatever, or a 100% chance of living, living in a world where I have 10, right? Um, I'd rather not exist, be sure to exist and have a life that's at least pretty much worth living, right? Yeah. Um, it seems to me like uh, that kind of reasoning could work too to maybe back up the humor claim, um, which yeah, which is that the, the B conclusion isn't repugnant. Yeah, it's better than A. That's yeah. like the counter argument. Or we yeah. could start out with we could start out with the same thing. We could start out with where we are now, and we could reason like, okay, suppose the world were as it is now, with the same income distribution that it, that it is now. Doesn't it seem like it would be like worse? if we reduce that population by a large amount and increase the well-being right. of everybody in that in such a way that that increase in their well-being uh, was less amounted to less of an aggregate than the aggregate of well-being now right which is just running this argument in reverse yeah and we could keep running that until there's like six people who live like really great lives yeah. right yeah. Let's go back and to here yourself. we go like we go like, no, that seems repugnant too, right? right? So it seems like- It's like the utility monster is yeah. like oh, hiding behind. Yeah, we just go like, oh, actually, like maybe we just, this is kind of a presence preference. Like we do kind of like where we're at right now individually. Yeah. And that we think that like reducing the population by an enormous amount to make those people really, really well off, yeah. um, that would be bad. And we also think that increasing the population in enormous, enormous amount and reducing all of our current well-being to uh, to that small of an idea would be really, really bad too. Yeah. Um, so it's just like wherever you are currently, you think, well, this is tolerable. I don't know if I want to there to be uh, an enormous number of people who are living much worse than I am. And I certainly don't want there to be a world where I probably don't exist, but those people are having a really great time. Yeah. Um, uh, is this, uh, I'm sure you'll say no, but anything somewhat related to your permissible partiality that um, you can put a higher preference to something you know now that you're in. I know that's a little bit of an offshoot of what you meant by it before, but that got me thinking about that when you said that, that, you know, where you are today, the status quo has more meaning than 
something bird in hand, two in the bush type of thing? Maybe, but only tangentially. Um, only in the sense that when you run the argument backwards, like I did, I think. Because um, if you run it the other way, there's just more people. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the whole point of this is that you're supposed to be doing this from like the God's eye perspective yeah. or whatever, right? right? You're That you're not one of the people. Right, yeah. that's um, you're not one. If you are one of the people, then... Uh, right then you definitely think it's bad. Yeah, so I, I think too on this, it, listeners, if you're kind of lost at this point with a Z and the A and everything, I think the easiest way to conceive of this is like the question that it's ultimately bringing up is, is it better to have a larger total or a larger average? This is ultimately the trade-off that's going on, right? And the what is like kind of paradoxical is that sometimes we can lower the average in a way that seems acceptable and increase the total by such a large amount that we're like, okay, we can lower the average in order to get a higher total. And by the average, it doesn't actually work exactly that way because we're actually raising the average as we go uh, to some extent, which is part of what makes it. But there, there's a trade-off between, do we want a larger number of people enjoying things or do we want a smaller number of people enjoying things more? Like that's ultimately what's going on. And there's not an easy answer to this. Like, a lot of times in, again, what, where this is valuable for me in economics is a lot of times in like an economics class, we like assume that there is like a societal welfare function where like you can maximize it and get the most benefit for everybody. And this points out that this might not be the case. Yeah. In fact, it's if we take seriously the idea that we can't compare happiness between people, which is one of the tenets of economics, if you're consistent, that we can't make what's called interpersonal utility comparisons. Uh, at least in my opinion, I think yeah. there's some who disagree with this. <laughs> then the, what that brings us to is it's actually really hard to decide if from A to B is a good step or not, like, yeah. or B to B prime. The, the point at which we decided that 80 for everybody was better than uh, 160, uh, a, a group of 100 and a group of 50. Yeah, percent. And there is a sense in which, yeah, that's potentially Pareto improving, but it's actually not a Pareto improvement, right? Because some people are lower down yeah. than they were before. And so like the difficulty is we actually can't say that the people who are lower down went down less, went down by a smaller amount than the people went up, yeah. right? Because actually like your 20 is not my 20. Right. Uh, that's ultimately one of the difficulties going on here. If I have to take a, make a stand or have a response though, I, I do take the Z is greater than A stands. I, I think that would be my, yeah, look, my if PhD, I have to make a response. My PhD professor, I just have to sneak this in real quick, said that at the beginning of this public economics class, he's like, well, so first day of class or so, you know, yeah, we all know that we can't do interpersonal comparisons and compare individual utilities. But now that we got that under our belt, let's teach the rest let's, of the course, which is all yeah, about social. Let's do it anyway. Let's do it anyway. Like literally that yeah. would be the opening chapter of a 16 chapter book. And you just assume away that yeah. after that. So the thing is, see, I think you can, I just think you can't measure them precisely, but in, <laughs> The way it's set up, if it's set up with units of well-being, which, again, this is a theoretical example, yeah, yeah. then by definition, my 20 is the same as your 20. When right. we do yes, it in yeah. terms oh, of absolutely. dollars absolutely. in the real yeah, life, sure. yeah. then that's not the case, yeah. right? But yeah, my answer to the paradox, I mean, I've said here on this podcast before, I actually think that moral problems do exist, right? That And... I think that, especially in politics, the existence of a problem does not imply the existence of a solution. Um, and, uh, you know, Russ has said this before that, uh, you know, 
in politics. And I think you quoted Thomas Sowell saying they're only trade-offs, mm, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And this is an example of that where it's, you know, there are no solutions. There's only trade-offs. Yeah. yeah. That would be where I land on this paradox. I think it is, I think there are certain problems in philosophy that are genuine paradoxes. And I think this is, I think this is one of them because I'm not intent to go to say that z is yeah I better than a i think I if think. i had to pick an answer like that was like a final solution answer then i would say z is <laughs> greater than a so but it, but it, but if i had to come to like an actual conclusion i would say i don't think there's an easy conclusion here yeah yeah i would say personally i'll say <clears throat> that there is a paradox that a is better than z and i would argue that that is it perfect is that right yeah perfect. he's arguing that there's a more of a damage to social planning than there is just to mind your own business <laughs> that what's what that was what i would take from that is You're that inferring that, it that's because there's because like you said he's he doesn't really create a solution he acknowledges that there's a problem here and i think the problem is us assuming we can create a better society when really we should just mind our own business well i i want to throw in a little faith stuff because when you said god's eye perspective i couldn't help but think of well what is god's eye perspective okay i think god's eye is we are all miserably unhappy <clears throat> if we knew you know what sin was actually doing for us and you know god's objective is to have some people come to faith to find true happiness right to move up to 100 like we're all sitting at this one or maybe even negative one. And the God's eye perspective is, oh, well, if you figure out that I'm uh, what it's all about, you become 100 for infinity. So that, that was my connection back to this and, and a, to roll a tiny bit of faith into, into this. Yeah. Ultimately, I, I like the thought experiment a lot. I think that it's really poorly applied in a lot of literatures, especially mine, because like Again, that people do this weird thing where they take the assumptions of the, they almost do the reverse of what people do with the trolley problem, which is try to ignore the assumptions. <laughs> There's a, a secondary temptation to like assume then the assumptions are real in the world and actually like make decisions based on those assumptions. When really like the, the real issue with these things is like a lot of these things are endogenous to each other. A lot of these things cause each other. Yeah. And so, you know, actually like you know, the, the people come from somewhere. Who do they come from? Well, parents. Well, generally parents are probably happier for having kids. And actually maybe kids make some people some unhappy. And so like, you know, Julian Simon, economist has a, a piece with a great title. It's actually a terrible title, but it's kind of great in, in a way, which is the welfare effects of an additional child cannot be stated clearly and certainly or something like that. <laughs> and the whole point of the piece is he lays out like all these, like literally like a hundred different like ways in which a child can affect the welfare of like people. And he, ex he does it by slowly expanding out circles. So he's got the family and then he's got the village and then he's got the village next to the village. And like, he slowly works out and points out like, oh, there's all these up signs and downsides for how the child's affecting people's welfare. And it's like, turns out it's a wash. That's a basically the equation for general welfare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So yeah. Uh, Positive yeah. externalities and negative externalities. Yeah. So effects. People are good and uh, life is worth living. And I think most people believe that even if they'll say otherwise, uh, there's a big old movement of like, yeah. you know, there's this joke. It's kind of a joke movement, kind of a real movement of like anti-population people. Right. And one of them out of India, who I think was like trying to sue his parents for conceiving him because being <laughs> born was so difficult. I just have a hard time buying I it. never uh, forgot. I went to a, a cocktail party with some people who didn't really know with some connections. And there was these social scientist people. We were in downtown Kansas City and they said, no, we're, we don't have any kids. You know, you're having the general conversation. Do you have kids or not? No, I, I couldn't think of bringing a child into this world. And then we kind of went down the path of 
the world's awful and it's doomsday and it's gonna and, and it's right. like the people like who they have are always in the world they had yeah. a social responsibility that was their primary yeah. driving force that they didn't feel right bringing a child into this world and they were like professors right they had plenty of income of and the ability yeah. to support yeah. them only <laughs> so, only someone so educated can believe something so stupid <laughs> absolutely yep all right. Well, that looks like a pretty good place to wrap. So this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us. Otherwise, feel free to pass this along to your friends and family. We do have an episode. We'll link in the show notes to our trolley problem since that was brought up a couple of times. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. <laughs>